This podcast contains graphic depictions of violence and is intended for mature audiences only. You're listening to True Crime Chronicles. This is True Crime Chronicles, and I'm Jessica Knoll, and I'm with Will Johnson and Spencer Brudig. This week, we're going to dig into a Sacramento case. And Spencer, this one goes back decades, but not just the murders. This is about childhood friends, too. Yeah, the murders themselves actually happened almost 30 years ago, but most of the people that were involved in this story met as little kids in a Sacramento neighborhood. And we've heard this referred to as Sacramento's Charles Manson murder. Not to confuse anyone, it has nothing to do with Manson, but it certainly evokes the hostility, the violence involved in this case. Yeah, it really was a a very brutal case, but the interesting thing is most people in Sacramento today don't really know about this. All right, guys, let's get into this week's episode. Our story begins in a small, middle-class neighborhood in Sacramento in the mid-1970s. It's here that many of the people in this story will meet as kids and become fast friends and possibly future enemies. All the kids, no matter what grade you were in, they all hung out together. They were very close. This is Michael Anthony Adams. He's an investigative reporter for ABC10 in Sacramento. He's also the director of the true crime docuseries, Real Monsters. There's a baseball field and basketball courts and, you know, picnic tables. And this is where all of these kids that grew up in Lawrence Park would congregate. After school, before school, everything that they did, they did at the park. And everyone that I talked to, um, you know, that was where they lived. That's where, you know, from dusk till dawn, that's where they would play. Mick Jacobs and his future wife, Marcy, grew up and first met in Lawrence Park, although they wouldn't start dating until years later. From those who were closest to Mick, he was kind of like the best of them all. He was the nicest, uh, you know, really attractive, young, blonde-haired kid. Um, All the girls really dug Mick. He was just this um, really outgoing, but, you know, had this kind of reserved um, moments to him. And he just was a friend of friend to everybody. And that's, and that's another thing that people really described about him was the fact that he just, he was a great friend. He would do anything for anybody. And that later in life would end up getting him killed. Now, Marcy's early life is a little more mysterious because not a lot of people that were close to her want to talk about her. But we do know a little bit. Outgoing, um, but she never had any connection with Mick when they were young. Those two kind of just gravitated toward one another later in life through mutual friends. And, and the way they did that was they were all friends anyway. So they all had mutual friends and it all kind of stemmed from this park. In the late 1980s, Mick and Marcy do end up together. And Marcy brings with her a young daughter from a previous relationship, Jenny. Mick was just more than happy to step in and play the role of Jenny's father. And um, from all accounts, he did you know, a fantastic job in doing that. Uh, Jenny called him dad, and that was, you know, that was who she knew as her father. From a young age, Jenny was just really, really outgoing, um, an avid reader. She was always in the library at Crocker Riverside Elementary. And um, she was one of those people uh, that didn't really fit in. um, And maybe that was because being an only child, she was raised around a lot of adults. 
Um, and she acted a little older than her age, as what we were told. Mick, Marcy, and Jenny all move into a modest house in the Land Park neighborhood in 1989, and by all accounts live a very social life. They have a lot of friends and are fiercely loyal to them, especially the ones from their childhood. On January 13th, 1991, it was pretty much like any other Sunday. According to what we know from police and what they were able to gather is that the family was home most of the day. Um, We don't really know exactly what they were doing at the house the day of because no one had talked to them. Uh, We only know that towards the end of the day, it appeared that they were getting ready for their week. Uh, the ironing board was out in the in the kitchen, uh, dining room area. It appeared that uh, Marcy was doing some ironing. There was some food out on the table. Everything in the house looked like a family that was uh, getting, you know, spending time together on a Sunday night, getting ready for the week uh, ahead. Um, and that's that's what we know. That's all. That's all we really know. Later that evening, Someone or multiple people come over to the house unbeknownst to the Jacobs family. And they were let in. Uh, There was no forced entry or anything like that. Um, So whoever came over to the house was known to the Jacobs family. And they entered the house, and it's kind of hard to know exactly what went down, but it appears that... Mick Mick was led out to the garage, which is a detached garage, you know, in the back of the home. Mick was led out to the garage to open this safe that they had inside the garage um, that he was storing for a friend of his while Marcy was kept in the in the living room. This safe becomes a critical component to this entire murder case. We will soon get to why it was there and what was inside of it. And they believe what happened next was Mick was shot first. Marcy in the living room hears the gunshot go off, uh, and then she is shot too in the living room at first. Uh, she is able to, you know, keep her faculties together to make it to the bathroom where she tries to close the door on whoever's in, you know, trying to get to her in the bathroom. And that person takes out a knife and starts stabbing her through uh, this little slit in the, uh, you know, between the, where the door closes. And it's a pretty brutal stabbing. I mean, she's already been shot once in the face. Part of her jaw was, you know, on the, on the ground in the, um, in the living room. So it's, it's pretty unbelievable that she was able to make it to the, uh, to the bathroom. Another thing Thing police are not sure of is if she was trying to get to the bathroom or down the hallway to her her daughter's uh, bedroom. Going from there to the bedroom was a more horrific sight of the little girl. This is Detective Dick Woods. He was one of the first people to enter the house. And she'd obviously been in bed and was shot in bed. And it was obvious she was shot in the head. Still had her uh, doll, teddy bear doll. And one of the things that was really striking about this also was the fact that there were multiple gunshots. I imagine a lot of uh, terror um, being yelled and, and being vocalized, and nobody heard anything. Nobody heard anything. That, that I, I think to me, that was the, one of the strangest parts of, of this whole case. I mean, you have someone that's shot in the house— multiple times, uh, you know, shot in the garage. So you have people shot at different, you know, different points of, uh, you know, on the property and not one person heard anything. This, this might help describe some of the reason why that is. The house is 
the house is kind of on the edge of Land Park, and right on this other side of this big brick wall, about two houses down, is the is Interstate Five. So you have I five with a bunch of traffic that's happening, um, you know, on the freeway right there, and then you have the house that's you know fairly close. So some of the freeway noise could have drowned out the gunshots, but it, it, I mean, if you've ever shot a gun or ever been around guns being shot. They're loud. They're loud. I mean, and, and, and they're pretty, it's a pretty distinct sound. I mean, even if you didn't think it was a gunshot, you'd probably think it was strange that someone was setting off fireworks in January, um, you know, mid-January uh, in the middle of the night. The next day, which is Monday, January 14th of 1991, none of the neighbors noticed anything wrong. Marcy was working for the Department of Justice, and when she didn't show up for work that Monday morning... Her coworkers thought it strange. They called over to the house. There was no answer. And they started to get a little bit worried. Apparently, Marcy was a rising star at the Department of Justice. You know, she was a, a crime analyst. So she, w- she was really working with kind of records at that point. But by all accounts, she was kind of on her way climbing the ladder and, and doing really well at her job. Um, so it was very odd that she didn't show up for work that Monday morning. So a couple co-workers get in the car and drive over to the house and notice that the newspaper is still on the front lawn and notice that the door, the side door is ajar. So they walk into the house and immediately, you know, upon entering the house, they can see the blood on the carpet, the blood on the walls, you know, the remains of, uh, of Marcy in the bathroom. And so they call the police immediately. It was late this morning when concerned friends of one of the victims stumbled upon the murder scene. We got the call that uh, bodies had been found inside of a house. This is Detective John Cabrera. He was one of the original detectives on the case. It was a man and a woman and a child who in the world would do that? Who would kill the child? You know, what would be the purpose of killing a small child? And so now I start gearing myself because these are not ordinary people that I'm going to be looking for. John Cabrera and Dick Woods were really the two lead detectives on the case. They were working the case, and both of them said that upon entering the house, they were just blown away by the scene, the circumstances, and ultimately the 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 death of of Jenny because they both have daughters and they both it both hit them very hard investigators interview neighbors friends and family members and begin piecing together what they think the timeline might have been for the murder they quickly identify the safe inside the garage as a possible key piece of evidence for the entire case so this safe didn't belong to Mickey and Marcy. This safe belonged to a good friend of theirs, uh, Richard Ricky McCarthy. This safe, it, it was stored in... It, uh, Mick had agreed to store the safe for Ricky as a favor to him. Uh, there was actually multiple safes that Ricky had stored at different friends' houses. Uh, police were able to find those safes. But the biggest one, and the one that contained... Uh, in theory, contained the most valuable items was the one that he stored at Mick's house. And it's not exactly known what was in the safe, and really the only um, clues to what, you know, what can be, what, what is known about what is in the safe is this, uh, this friend of both Ricky and Mick's named Bob Cartago. 
Bob was over to Mick's house uh, a few few months. He, he's not real sure on the timeline, but pretty pretty close before you know the the Jacobs were shot. And Bob actually witnessed what was in the safe. So we went over there. As we walked in, Mickey was playing video games with Jenny, and she was just smiling from ear to ear. And they were having a ball together. After a little while, they said, hey, Bobby, you know, Ricky said, let's go out to the garage. So we got out there, and we stood in there for a few minutes, and you couldn't help but notice there was a safe. After a little bit, he opened up the safe, and I have to say that once that door swung open, I felt kind of uncomfortable. There was jewelry and exotic knives, some exotic guns, and there was money in there, quite a bit, and bags of illegal stuff. Tell me about the owner of the safe, Ricky McCarthy. Ricky McCarthy uh, also grew up in Lawrence Park. He was part of this Lawrence Park gang. Um, And when I say gang, I don't mean it in the sense of, you know, a criminal street gang. Uh, He played baseball with Mick. Uh, They were good friends since they were childhood friends, really. And they grew up together. And it was, like I said, I mean, Mick would do anything for his friends and he he agreed to hold on to the safe for for Ricky, uh, even while knowing that Ricky was dealing in some criminal activities that that it didn't appear that Mick was a part of. And so Ricky and Mick kind of had a split, right, where even though that they were still buds, Ricky went down a little bit of a different path. And can you describe that path? Sure. So Ricky was hanging around with uh, outlaw motorcycle clubs in town. He wasn't affiliated with the Sacramento Hells Angels or any of the other outlaw motorcycle groups here, but he rode a Harley. Uh, he dealt drugs. He manufactured drugs in his house, and he was just kind of you know this nomad drifter who you know it he wasn't a bad guy i mean he never did any wrong to anybody in the sense of of, of violence but he was dealing drugs and and manufacturing drugs so you know he he was involved in criminal activity on the other hand mick you know held a stable job uh was uh, you know working for a contractor in town you know had a house had bought a house had a family um you know, not not someone that you would think would be associating with you know someone like that. But you know, it, when you're when you're old friends and you part ways in life, it doesn't mean you stop being friends. You just have gone down different paths. Ricky has made a lot of money through various illegal ventures, but he was also holding down a job in downtown Sacramento. Ricky kind of was working a job on and off uh, as a janitor at the state house, cleaning the governor's office. And he would go at night, clean the governor's office with drugs in his pocket. After he would leave the state house, he would go, he would go and sell drugs after after work, after leaving the state house. So actually, one night after you know making his rounds throughout the state house, cleaning the state house, he left the state house and drugs in his pocket, uh, gun in his you know a concealed weapon in his car. He he leaves the state house and gets busted pulled over and, uh, you know, is busted for the drugs and the weapons in his car. So he's going to do a little bit of time. Um, he has a court date set up, 
uh, in October, and it's around you know the fall of 1990 that he approaches Mickey and says, "Hey, I might be going to jail soon. Uh, could you hold on to some stuff for me? Because I'm afraid that you know the people I deal drugs to and the people that know that I deal drugs will know that I'm heading off to jail and might come rob my house. So I just want to make sure that all this stuff is safe. And uh, would you do this favor for me?" And Mickey, being the kind of guy he is, says, "Yeah, of course." timeline gets a little fuzzy here so we know that ricky is let out of jail but we don't know why ricky doesn't go and retrieve his safe from from mick's house uh so we don't really know what happens to to ricky at all after after he's released there's a few accounts of people seeing him it's really um really unknown what you know what happens to him um and then fast forward to the murder that happens a few weeks later um you know we we just we never know what happens to ricky mccarthy he he disappears while many believed he was a part of the home invasion burglary and subsequent murders police and michael don't think so but the theory is is that while ricky was in jail he was bunkmates with this Person X. I know the name of Person X. I just, it, it's not right for me to say it just yet. And Ricky's got a big mouth. He likes to kind of show off. Uh, and he starts saying, well, man, I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not worried about when I get out of jail. I'll be set up. I got, I got lots of money stored away. So Person X, unbeknownst to, to Ricky, is pretty high up in the Sacramento Hells Angels. And so here he is, you know, person X listening to Ricky say, oh man, I got all this money outside and I'm not worried about, you know, when I get out, uh, you know, I'll be set for life. So Ricky gets out, person X also gets out. And what police think is that person X approaches Ricky, tries to squeeze the information on him. Hey, give me your money. Where is it? Ricky won't tell him. Ricky won't give up who um who has his belongings and so they kill ricky for it that also brings in person y okay so person y uh who has been the person of interest in this case you know short you know for for the you know for the longest time has um also has knowledge of where these safes are so person x goes to person y and squeezes person y and person y gives up where the where the safe is located. So what police think is person X, along with person Y, uh, go and go into this house. Uh, you know, go go to Mick's house, and they get the you know they. That's how all this went down. Ricky was trying to protect Mick and Marcy this whole time. I, I police have never thought that Ricky gave them up and you know wanted something bad to happen to them uh so it it's probably i mean police assume that ricky was probably killed because you know he didn't uh, he didn't want to give up where the where these safes were located and in in the crossfire of all this is a is a couple that was doing something really nice for their friend and, and their little girl Exactly. And that's how police described it pretty early on, too, is like, it's these good Samaritans who, you know, were doing a favor for a friend and got killed for it. Now, I also don't want to, you know, paint such a beautiful picture of the family. I mean, Mick and Marcy did have methamphetamine in their blood. Um, so it, it, it's kind of generally accepted that, yes, they were hardworking adults. They 
did take care of their, you know, their daughter, but they also partied probably a little bit too. And they were probably using some of the drugs that were in the safe, um, you know, at the time. Uh, they did have drugs in their system and, you know, they, they did go to parties and it was, you know, it's, it, it, I, I don't think they were hardcore drug users. I think it's generally accepted that they might have been recreational drug users. After a year goes by, you know, they, it's, kind of, it's kind of going cold quickly because there are no witnesses to this crime. And the only witnesses that there could have been are now dead. So they have the people that perpetrated the crime, which aren't coming forward. And they have Mick, Marcy, and Jenny, who were brutally murdered. So there are no witnesses. There's no DNA evidence. They've they've collected a lot of um, uh, you know evidence samples of you know fingerprints and things like that. And they've run they they have since run them all through DNA analysis, and nothing has come up with a match. So um, it, the case goes cold fairly quickly. Weeks turn to months months into years, and years into decades. Although police received tips early on, they weren't able to prosecute. Many of the detectives, who have long since retired, still view this case as one that haunts them. There were two cases that stuck with me during my 36 years, East Area Rapist, and this is the other case that I would like to see answers to and finished while I'm still around. They have theories, and they're pretty sure about who did this, but they don't have answers. And that that's, I, I guess for any homicide detective, you know, they get into that line of work because they want justice. They want to find out who did it. And, you know, they weren't able to give that to Mick Marcy and Jenny and their family. They weren't able to provide that kind of justice. And, and you know, there's a lot of cases that... Um, that they weren't able to solve over the years. Um, they had both of them had pretty high solve rates, uh, you know, for as as far as homicide detectives go. But not being able to, you know, to close this one w- was tough for them. They both ended up retiring from the Sacramento Police Department, um, and both of them say they wish they could go back and work this case. Even after almost thirty years, the families and friends of the Jacobs, the police, and the city of Sacramento are pushing for final answers. Governor Brown authorized a fifty thousand dollar reward for any new information on this case, and Sacramento Police Department has placed a new cold case detective on the case, who is currently reviewing all of the evidence with a fresh pair of eyes. So, police pretty much have their person of interest or a suspect, but they just can't prove it until they get that either confession or silver bullet piece of evidence. Yeah, they would need they would need someone else that has either come, you know, that that person Y has confessed to uh, or a silver bullet piece of evidence, you know, something that they check again and find DNA on, even though they've run everything and, you know, haven't found any DNA on anything and, um, you know, or a confession. Yeah. This final piece of evidence is a theme in a lot of cold cases. But detectives, both retired and current, are still hopeful and almost angrily certain that justice will be served. Listen to Michael asking a question to retired detective John Cabrera in one of their final interviews together. So if they're watching this, what would you say to them? Get ready for a knock on your door sooner or later because it's going to happen sooner or later. 
So someone that studied this that has um, talked with all these people that has intensely investigated this, um, drawn your own analysis, what happens now? From from a, from my point of view, I think it, it's still a waiting game. All these people still live with this today, um, and they continue to live with it every day, uh, knowing that their friends, their loved ones were brutally murdered and that the people that possibly did it are still out there, still you know, living their lives, not locked up, and are, are living with this too. And so it's just a huge waiting game now to see who's going to come forward and fess up that they either know something or that they know who did it. Okay, Spencer, I have a question about Mr. X and Mr. Y. Do we know anything about them, their identities? Obviously, we don't name them in this story. Police have never actually come out and revealed the identity of their persons of interest. So Michael just didn't feel comfortable yet releasing the names. Um, Both Mr. X and Mr. Y knew the family, and that is a big reason why they think their daughter, Jenny, was killed. Spencer, early on in the story, you mentioned Mick's personality. He's this friendly, nice guy, even as a kid. And maybe that comes into play much later in his life and ultimately the end of his life, the fact that he was helping out a friend. Yeah, he really was just helping his childhood buddy out. And one of the sad parts of all of this, though, is Jenny had real, really no decision-making power in this at all. And she was a nine-year-old kid that probably didn't even know about the safe, and she was killed as well. And you mentioned earlier that this was not a really well-known case, certainly today. But even back then, it was overshadowed a little bit by other news. Is that right? Yeah, while this was big news for just a little bit of time, soon after the Gulf War broke out, and it completely overshadowed all of the news of this local murder. All right. Thanks, Spencer, for bringing us the story. We will all three be back next week with a new case and a new story. True Crime Chronicles is a Vault Studios production. You can tell your friends to listen, subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and all major listening apps. You can find Vault Studios on Twitter, Instagram, and check out our Facebook group, Gone Cold, where we discuss this and other cases.